and Breakfast with Penny Smith on Talk Radio. Uh, we're now crossing to John Bonfilio, who's the Latin America correspondent, because, of course, the UK's banned flights from Portugal, uh, Latin America. Uh, there's all sorts of issues going on because of this Brazilian COVID variant. John, good morning to you. Uh, tell me, first of all, a bit more about this variant. Morning, Penny. Yep, so there's, there's thought to be two current Brazilian variants, one which is in the UK but isn't thought to be uh, the worrisome one, and then there's this other second one, which is one of the reasons why, or the reason why, there's been a ban on on flights and travel from South America and and Portugal. The the brass tacks of it is that uh, the variant is thought to be more infectious um, and has been linked to an upsurge in in cases in in Brazil, and it's also linked to a reduced antibody response. So essentially, it, it makes it harder for the body to to fight off. It is currently not thought to affect vaccines or treatment, but of course, as with all of these variants, this is all very new news, um, and much of what we know is, is largely speculation rather than based on any, you know, kind of studied fact over, over time. And it was the Japanese who first alerted the world to this new strain of the disease. It is. So essentially, there were some, some travellers from, from the northern state of Amazonas, from Manaus, that went over to, to Japan and then were diagnosed with, uh, with, with COVID. And then this particular uh, variant, and then it was traced back to, um, to that state. And it's also why Manaus is currently, Manaus, the capital of Amazonas, is also currently massively badly hit once again as part of the second wave. I'm sure your listeners will remember that it was one of the worst hit cities in the first wave where uh, mass graves had to be dug and re- refrigerated vehicles for uh, for bodies and, and so on had to be taken up to Amazonas. And currently the state is declared a state of emergency. It's essentially running out of oxygen um, and remarkably is actually running manual ventilators. So they're actually scheduling medical professionals to actually man and pump manual ventilators because they've run out of um, of electric ventilators and premature babies and COVID patients are being lift, airlifted out by, um, by, by the Air Force. The, the current Brazil stats are 8 million infected, a little over 8 million infected and 205,000 dead, which is the second, makes Brazil the second worst affected country uh, in the world after, after the USA. And you mentioned that the first time it was a hotspot for the pandemic. Now, to, to, to explain to people, Manaus is... It's, you, 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 I mean, I'd visited it by going up the Amazon River for three days. Um, and it's, it's built in the heart of the Amazon. And it, it's seen as vulnerable to COVID because it's a free trade zone, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a border point. And actually, you know, much, much of the, um, the history and the inception point of the city was exactly because of that. As you say, in that area of the Amazon, which is massively remote, transport essentially is by river. Um, there's no roads up there, essentially. So it's a completely isolated uh, spot. But it's also a key point of contact with the Amazonian countries around it for transport by river. And so and as a result, there's a fair bit of movement between those those countries over land. And and it's got that that perfect storm of it not just being a, a crossover point um, for free trade between those other countries, but also so far away from a Brazilian infrastructure well, there is a Brazilian infrastructure, but it also makes getting anything up there particularly difficult. And also workers. You've got workers living in crowded homes and then they're mixing with employers who are regular travellers. And 
the city, I think I'm right in thinking, is, is very much pro-President Bolsonaro, who has in the past referred to COVID-19 as a little flu. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of outposts uh, are very pro-Bolsonaro in the sense that there's probably miners, loggers, agribusiness professionals in those in those spaces as well. So you do have a large, um, I guess, kind of conflict area between those new arrivals and the new economies in those uh, those extractionist economies, and then largely also the indigenous communities in those in, in those areas, the traditional communities who obviously stand front and centre of trying to resist these. Um, these expansions, as you say, regarding Bolsonaro, he throughout this whole um, issue cast aspersions on um, on the pandemic. He himself famously also uh, tested positive uh, a few months ago. And then in the middle of a of a conversation at the presidential uh, palace through this with with reporters, whilst he was still positive, decided to take off his mask and and continue having conversations with them close up. And most recently, in a in a press conference of a few days ago, he started casting aspersions on the vaccine, saying that uh, there was no way of knowing that the, the vaccines weren't actually going to cause side effects and they were going to be effective and so on. And then went on to say that, of course, the, the COVID pandemic is terrible, but the government, but the federal government has done their bit. So not much more that they can uh, not much more they can do. The other story in, in, a, in a Brazilian COVID context is the Chinese vaccine, which has been tested there um, over the course of the last few months. And there's a controversy there at the moment because um, as uh, one report suggested that it was 80 percent effective that came out about a fortnight ago. But then there was there were issues related to the transparency of the process related to the to, to the vaccine. And it's now come out that essentially the, the, the efficacy of the vaccine is is at 50 percent. And this is important internationally because it's one of the ways in which China is attempting to or continuing to curry favor with with poorer countries um, internationally, not just in terms of major um, industrial builds, infrastructure builds, but now also using this this vaccine and the free dissemination of this vaccine as political leverage. But the country hasn't actually begun formal vaccinations, though, has it? Um, with most countries in Latin America, vaccines are beginning to to arrive, depending on what treat what what agreements have been uh, had and so on. Uh, the, the the most significant agreement in Brazil is with the Astra with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, most important because it can be uh, stored at normal fridge temperatures and is cheap as well. So in a in a in the context of countries that have limited affordability, but also have really remote outposts, as with Manaus that we mentioned a, a minute ago, the transport of these of these vaccines is uh, the infrastructure around the, the transport of these vaccines is is crucial. So the the, the Moderna and the, and the Pfizer are a little bit um, trickier for them to to move around. So the beginnings of the rollout of these vaccines is taking place. But I wouldn't say that we've seen any uh, mass uptake in the region so far. Now, over here, at the beginning, the, the first lockdown, we had the clap for carers, which was people going out on Thursday evening and going and applauding the NHS staff and, and people who worked in the caring industries. You've got pot banging in Brazil, uh, haven't you? And there's been pressure on the president that the pot banging though is actually not in a necessarily uh, it's not about a, a clap for carers is it no it's the opposite it's a protest it's a protest noise that has sprung up um in the absence of people being able to go on mass demonstrations in particular in an anti Jair bolsonaro federal government in, in activity context people have taken to 
their balconies um, and their rooftops to bang pots in protest. And this is actually quite remarkable. This has been going on for for a few months now and started in in Sao Paulo as a form of as a form of resistance. And and now ordinarily once a week on a on a Friday evening, people will come out and bang their pots for for an hour to to demonstrate whatever kind of militancy can be demonstrated in a, in a covid risk free uh, context for sure a, a cultural you know strange cultural uptake which has taken place in brazil over the course of the last few months and can we end by talking about cuba because the, america under president trump has been cuba has been put back on a list of state sponsors of terrorism and it's citing the communist countries backing of venezuela tell us a bit more about that yeah so i mean i guess uh, you know no serious commentator doesn't think this isn't about trump pressing red buttons in the final days of his administration but essentially he's put cuba back on the u.s terrorism sponsor list which is a bit of a mouthful citing their backing of of, of, of venezuela and what essentially that, that it, it's it, there's two reasons behind it one is um Essentially, like we were saying, to press red buttons. But the second thing is to actually um, hamstring the Biden administration on its way in, because essentially it forces a procedural difficulty and process, which is likely to take months in terms of um, U.S. relations with with Cuba, that Biden already was was looking to to soften in terms of freeing up travel and commerce and um, and so on. I mean, in terms of the Venezuelan context, for sure, Venezuela is a repressive state. You know, embarks on political violence, but it, you know, it's not involved in any kind of terrorism. So it's a spurious, um, it's a spurious um, attack that that the Trump administration has has levelled on uh, on Cuba. And the other big story coming out of Cuba at the moment is the, the Cuban economics of the island, where the two currency system that's been going on for the last 30, 30 years or so has now been uh, simplified in inverted commas into a single currency system. I didn't even know they had two currencies. <laughs> I've, I've travelled there, and I swear I only used one. How do, yeah, what's yeah. What's well, the other for, one? Yeah, well, the, the other one is the one that tourists can't access. So essentially, um, during the special period where the USSR, the Soviet Union, was was breaking down, and they were the big, the big supporter of the, of the Cuban state, um, Cuba had nowhere to go economically, and they needed hard currency. So essentially, they established this this dual system in which normal Cubans on the street get paid in the normal Cuban peso and they, they can buy normal uh, produce and, and products that are uh, that exist in that economy. But then essentially, in order to try and access the hard currency, what the Cuban state did was they forced um, tourists and, and foreign investment that was coming in to pay in dollars or in the convertible Cuban peso because it was the dollar was pegged to the convertible Cuban peso. And that meant that they had access to hard currency and were able to uh, to buy things internationally and and so on. The issue was that you then developed what has been referred to as an economic apartheid in in the state uh, with mass inequalities, where you had people working in the tourism sector who were significantly wealthier than doctors, say, for instance, because they had access to to a section of the economy that most people didn't. And yeah, and it was it was a process which was widely reviled in Cuba by the average Cuban citizen. But essentially now with this, what is essentially the worst economic crisis since the fall of the Soviet Union to before Cuba because of the Venezuelan economic implosion, particularly because of uh, COVID driving down tourism by by 70% on the island to, to devastating effect and the Trump hardline policies, it's meant that um, the Cuban state has tried to simplify its processes, which is essentially led uh, to a, a mass devaluation 
in the simplification of the of the of the process, um, which is going to affect everybody on the street pretty significantly. Actually, I don't know whether you can answer this question, but how how is COVID there? Because they have to, they do have an incredible health and also education system there, don't they? They do absolutely. And uh, you know, one of the things when when you look at the how different states have responded to to COVID, it's really interesting because Cuba, hands down, and not just uh, in the region but also internationally, has been one of the countries that has been able to throw the kitchen sink at at COVID with. Um, with nurses and doctors doing daily visits around um, addresses across the island where you've got a designated health visitor that comes and checks your temperature and so on. Um, and uh, largely very few deaths caught early and the and not just the, the state infrastructure that allows them to do that, but also, as you absolutely correctly say, an, an enviable um, health service and system which which they've had um, for for decades since the Cuban Revolution, which means that the Cuban doctors are one of the most successful exports uh, that that Cuba has, and massively professionalized and massively successful healthcare system. So they've actually been able to control COVID pretty well. I mean, obviously it's an island as well, which assists with that particular context in terms of you know uh, organizing your your borders. But particularly, they've managed to really switch on the very best of their systems to control. Uh, the pandemic locally. So one good news, uh, one good news story from the area. Thank you very much. That's John Bonfilio, the Latin America correspondent.